At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you force me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Best in Show, the podcast focused on the rabbit and KB show world. I'm here with my wonderful co-host, Alan Messick. Alan, how are things in your part of the world? Oh, it's great here in California. It's a nice, warm Sunny day. Sorry for everyone that maybe is still dealing with some cold, but it's it's beautiful here. And I'm excited tonight because I'm back in my little office in my podcast studio. So I won't have any distractions like some of the past episodes where we tried some live uh, with some audience that were there. But, you know, it was fun. There was an energy to it. I liked that. Yeah, it, it reminded me of, you know, those dinners after the shows, which we reminisce about when you're with your friends that you don't get to see very often, except maybe on a weekend. And uh, I'm, I'm lucky to have that that community up here where I live to be able to get together and and, and talk rabbits with with my friends. So yeah, that, if there was some clanking of the dishes at that <laughs> previous podcast, yeah, there were clanking of the dishes because yeah, we were doing dishes and, and talking and and just being pretty informal as friends. It was ambiance. I loved it. Those are some of the best conversations. They are. So today we're continuing our Best in Show series. Um, we are going to be joined today by 2003s. Best in Show winner, Joe Kim, who won with the tan. Um, this was the first convention held in Wichita, Kansas, which is kind of my hometown. So that was a fun show for me. Alan, Such a great show. You were at that convention, right? Oh, heck yeah. That was like my fourth <laughs> convention, I think. And I love that convention because as, as I've been to many conventions since and returned to Wichita, there's nothing like having a hotel that's attached to the showroom where you literally can park your car, not get back in it, and then... Uh, roll out of bed and r- just walk down to the showroom. Show rabbits, eat, drink, and be merry. I know some <laughs> people um, that go do sightseeing during convention and I'll come back and people at home are like, so what did you see when you were wherever you went? And I'm like, Meh, the showroom. And we went out one night for dinner, which was fun. <laughs> but, right. you know, for me, my my vacation, my sightseeing is all in the showroom. It's my Absolutely. friends and the rabbits. It totally focused on the showroom. That was the best bar hopping experience of my life. <laughs> In Wichita, Kansas. Wow. Welcome, Joe Kim. <laughs> well, I do get a lot of questions um, about whether we'll do another one. Um, so I want to address that for just a minute. I mean, everybody here is beyond flattered that you love our city. Um, we're Kansans. We kind of get down on it sometimes. Um, but it's a great venue for convention. You know, it's relatively affordable as far as hotels and much more so than some of their places as far as meals. Oh my gosh, I, I have sticker shock sometimes when we go to some of these cities. Um, the answer to that is the venue that we use kind of as between 2003 and 2012, um, 
there's some real questions about the future of that building. Um, we also use that for our performing arts productions that come through the city. However, it is kind of outdated. We don't have the backstage space um, or the ability to handle some of the larger productions that people want to see. So there's been some discussion of whether we should tear the whole thing down and build another production or performing arts center and another convention center, whether we should save Century 2. There's a large group that's um, that's formed to kind of fight for the building because it's kind of an iconic part of Wichita's architecture. Um, I tend to be more on the save Century 2 side, but I think we do need to build a performing arts center and then just make some renovations to make Century 2 a bit more convention friendly um, because it's it's such a neat venue. I really like it. Well, um, isn't there a maybe magic a around that, that venue too? Like, and I've worked behind the scenes with conventions out here and we experienced this with the Del Mar convention that eventually the host or the, not the host, but the venue itself was not so welcoming to us in rabbits and that I'm talking about Del Mar, but when it comes to Wichita, didn't the, the, the city of Wichita, like really weren't they part of a catalyst that in part of the ingredient to why rabbits returned to Wichita? Like they were welcoming to us, correct? So here's the thing. Um, the Heartland group that put on that convention, we never got together and said, you know, we should put on a convention. That would be really great. Um, back in the early 2000s, I think, because our first bid was for 2002 and the board selected Peoria, Illinois, which had hosted a previous convention. Um, the I think the Wichita Convention Visitors Bureau just called up the ARBA and said, hey, how do we get you guys here? And so the office called us and the people in Wichita were like, well, you know, Okay. And we put on a convention. And then again, I, it was 2012. It was looking like there were no bids coming in. And we got called again. Hey, you guys put on a great convention. You want to do it again? Uh, well, okay. And the second one is much easier than the first because a lot of the work is already done. The floor plan is laid out. That's a big, big thing. Um, you kind of know a little bit more about the rhythm of the convention. People have done the job before. Um, so it's it's a little easier the second time. And I think you'll agree, Alan, you've been part of, you know, multiple large shows at the same facility. Um, oh, it's so, always yeah, easier second time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a lot of fun. And, you know, never say never. But right now, the answer is we don't know what kind of a facility we might have in the future. Well, I hope it comes back because we I, I don't think I've ever felt more welcome as a rabbit person or, you know, in the Airbnb than at that venue. Like we were in the hotel, it was a nice hotel. Like we were not looked down upon <laughs> uh, with our, with our, you know, dirty shavings, ridden hair and cage cards. Like the hotel was like, Hey, welcome. Welcome to Wichita. Here we go. Yeah. And, and me being a local, I remember getting in an elevator and seeing where some feet had spilled on the floor and, you know, <laughs> seeing some shavings and a nice chair in the hallway. And I'm like, Oh no, <laughs> but they were totally cool about they were great it. with it. Nobody said anything about our rooms, which, you know, we tend to cram a lot of people in the room and they look like tornadoes <laughs> during the week. Yeah. <laughs> but that's our people. That's us. Yep. So, Alan, do you have some uh, rabbit history for us from the year 2003? I sure do. So I picked uh, the spring edition 2003 Domestic Rabbit magazine to uh, dive in for some stuff that was, you know, current events back then. Um, for example... Glenn Carr, who was considered our secretary at the time, he later on or later went on to be called the executive director, currently held by Eric Stewart. So in the Glenn Carr secretary report, he begins with a detailed and elaborate ARBA registration system. And he proudly boasted that the ARBA registration system separates itself in precision 
from other livestock species, such as like the examination of each rabbit or cavy by an ARBA licensed registrar. And for those listening who have livestock, you know that most livestock species, if not all, it's registration by birth. Or, you know, if you're the progeny of two registered parents, you gain registration status. Where in rabbits, it doesn't matter who your parents are, as long as uh, you, you meet the standard and adhere to uh, having no disqualifications and have a pedigree, of course, um, you still have to be registered and examined by a registrar. So that really separates us in quality from other livestock species. And in and, and Glenn Carr's report, he, he boasts about that. Um, moving on in, this, in that domestic rabbit magazine issue, in the Standards Committee report, ARBA Standards Committee Chairman Tex Thomas presents the working standard for the Otter Hollenlop, which had recently passed its first presentation um, before the Standards Committee at the Peoria Convention in 2002. And uh, Californian Heather Odebashian was the CUD holder, and she went on to successfully pass that otter variety. It's hard to imagine Hollenlops without otters, but uh, back in 2003, they were actually a, a pretty new thing when it comes to um, the standard we, know, we knew then. Uh, there was an interesting article in this Domestic Rabbits. It was called uh, How to Purchase Abyssinians for Your Breeding Program. And it was by Robert Spitzer, of course, ARBA KV judge from Arizona. And he describes the breed, quote, like hyperactive children. And he said it's a character which he sums up as, uh, quote, little clowns and which are encouraged to run on, up and down on the tables. And he says, and this is exactly what draws me to the, to the breed. Um, do you remember Linda Pet and her pet column? Yes, I do. It's so funny because her last name actually was Pet, spelled P-E-T-T. <laughs> and she was also a Californian, but she wrote the pet column in every domestic grab magazines. And uh, in this current issue or that issue in 2003, she dedicated it to books, which she recommends to rabbit breeders. And she starts off, of course, with uh, the ARBA guidebook, Raising Better Rabbits and Cavies. Goes on to mention one of her favorites, which is Watership Down. And I think it's called Bunny Cula. I'm not quite sure. Um, and Tales Within the Rabbitry, uh, something that was written by Jeanette Adams, which portrayed the lives of show rabbits, particularly a Hollenlop named Bilbo. Um, <laughs> later in the issue, Kathy Patrick, the legendary late great Kathy Patrick, she was actually the, the author of the Registrar's column. And she dedicated her column to like what, what Glenn Carr did in his secretary report, which was um, outlining the registration process. And she says at the time, a publication in 2003, there were 748 licensed ARB registrars, 629 of those 748 were rabbit registrars, 80 being KV, and 360 of all of those 748 were actually licensed ARB judges. Because as we know, once you become an ARB licensed judge, you also have your registrar's license. So you're considered you know, having a license in both. So there were 748 licensed registrars back then, 360, by the way, also held judge licenses. And then uh, further on, I had to jump into uh, the District 2 report because that's that's where I'm from out here on the West Coast in California. And it was written by ARBA Director Joe Lugo. And he outlined some show winnings from within the district, including the results from the Great Western Livestock Show. Bo Williamson, who is, of course, son of Dr. Scott Williamson, who uh, was on our podcast three. Uh, Bo Williamson, his son, won Reserve and Show with a Dutch and best in show at the 2003 Great Western Livestock Show was none other than Joe Kim with a tan. Bryony, what was going on in the world in 2003? Well, there were a lot of big events this year, um, starting off with a sad one. On February 1st, um, the space shuttle Columbia disintegrated during reentry over Texas, killing all seven astronauts on board. Um, like the Challenger disaster, this really led to kind of an examination and overhaul of some of NASA's policies and procedures, as well as grounding the space shuttle program for a while while they 
kind of reworked that to to make sure that nothing like this would happen again. In March, um, the Iraq war began with the invasion of the of Iraq by the U.S. and allied forces, something that, you know, we're still kind of dealing with. Um, in June, um, Poland and the Czech Republic joined the European Union in um Let's see. Oh, we had some interesting events in uh, animal science. In April, the world's first deer was cloned. And in May, the world's first horse was cloned. Um, the Human Genome Project was completed with 99% of the human genome sequence. That doesn't seem like it was that long ago. Um, the top-rated TV shows in 2003. Do you have any guesses? Jeopardy. <laughs> Jeopardy. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, 2003. Uh, I would say American Idol. It was number two and number three because remember, really? there's Tuesday and Wednesday. Yep. Um, number one was CSI. Number four was Friends. It seems like it's been gone longer than that. No kidding. Um, number five was The Apprentice. And number six was ER, which also seems like it's been gone a little bit longer. Ages ago. Yeah. Um, the list of Billboard Hot 100 hits, some songs from 2003, uh, Lose Yourself by Eminem, Into Club by 50 Cent. That's like the soundtrack to my going out years. Um, Crazy in Love by Beyonce, uh, Hey Ya by Outkast. I love that album, Speaker Box and Love Below. And uh, Seven Nation Army by um, the White Stripes is also big, oh, which I thought course. was fun. It came out in 2003 and Great talked song. about we're going to Wichita. <laughs> yes, it did. You're so right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I forgot about that. So timely. So timely. Great. Gosh, whatever happened to Eminem? Go off. I haven't heard about him in years. Oh, who was it he was having a feud with? Somebody I'd never heard of. That's the latest I've heard about Eminem in the news. Sadly, there weren't any ballots in there. I'm sorry, Bryony. Oh, I'm not. I'm not at all. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So so should we move on to uh, the bulk of our episode nine? Absolutely. Let's introduce our guest. I don't know about you, Brian, but I'm super excited to introduce our guest tonight and to hear what he's got to say. I've known this guy for a long time. Um, I consider him actually one of the most influential people in my rabbit um, education and my rabbit career. I used to... (laughs) Back in the day when I moved to California, I would actually uh, eavesdrop on on this guy, Joe Kim, uh, and his conversations with other judges when he was hyper-focused on perfecting his game. And I learned more about type by being a fly on the wall, uh, listening to his conversations than, than I <laughs> – when I sit down and think about it, like, wow, these are all things that go back to those years where I was like, whoa, what is Joe talking about? Because no one had ever talked about it before. And, uh, and of course he had an incredible career as in rabbits. Then, um, he, he grew up in rabbits. He, he did rabbits as a kid, which he's going to talk about, talk about over the years. He's raised breeds like Nephilim dwarfs, Britannia petites. He currently has mini Rex. And of course a breed, which is synonymous with the name Joe Kim. That's of course the tan. Joe is not only considered one of the most driven and successful rabbit breeders of our generation, including the 2003 ARBA best in show win but he's also one of the most passionate contributors to the better understanding of rapid evaluation. Joe Kim, welcome to Best in Show and podcast episode nine. Hi, Alan. Hi, Bryony. How are you this evening? It's so good to have you on here. We're great. Even better because you're here with us. (laughs) We're excited. Glad to be here. So let's just, we we do every episode like this. Tell us, how on earth did you get started in rabbits? Okay, so... 
before that, before there was the, you know, the internet and social media, there was, you know, there was something called the library, a public library where people used to go. And I remember as a kid, I had, I used to raise Siamese fighting fish, bettas, and I used to raise gut, show guppies, and I used to raise Corydoras catfish. And I really wanted to have larger animals. And I went to the library, and in the small animal section, there was a, a, a book I, I, I kind of pulled out. At that point, it was like a brown version, one of the earlier editions. It was called Raising Rabbits the Modern Way by Bob Bennett. And I literally, as a teenager, I read that book from cover to cover. And probably multiple times. I read it as an adult, even, and you know, it's great to see Bob Bennett on Facebook, and you know, still contributing to certain comments and posts. And I think it's great. But I read that post, and I said, I have to have rabbits. So I begged <laughs> my parents to let me have rabbits, and you know, I got into. I, I I looked at all all breeds. There were so many breeds back then. There's more now, but um, he used to raise the breed called the tan, and he talked about how. He imported rabbits from, you know, from the UK and how, you know, he was successful. I think he had, you know, he lived in uh, in uh, New Jersey and he was showing out there. And I kind of looked at the footprint and I, I thought this is great. He said there's a four pound, four and a half pound rabbit and it serves multiple purposes. You can eat it. You can use the pelt. You can show the rabbit and you can sell breeding stock. And I figured out a way to convince my parents that I could have a hobby that would pay for itself which at that, at that point, it really didn't because there wasn't a great demand for tans. And I didn't really eat my tans, you know, at that point. But uh, I was, I mean, that's how I really got led into rabbits by reading this book. And then I saw that there was a 4-H club. It was the Vigo County 4-H club. It was uh, led by a guy named David Booth. And some of the, uh, some of the other leaders in that club were, Gene uh, Gene Burnett, who's now Gene Thomas, another legendary youth mentor inside of Rabbits, and Gene's uh, sisters Terry and uh, Marianne, and I remember going to this uh, Rabbit meeting um, in, at the fairgrounds, and I said, "This is I, I found it. This is something I really want to do." And that's when I got Rabbits. First breed I had was Tans as a kid. I think I was eleven or twelve years old. I wasn't even a teenager then. And that's how I got started. So interesting. And I love the story about the library. I like that. The library, what? What's that? You know, I remember when I was in a uh, freshman in high school and I had just started Rabbits, I, I couldn't get enough books about Rabbits. And, and today, if I read those books, I'm sure something like I'd be laughing at the, the stuff I was reading. But I, just like you, like I was, it was like, it was magnetism. You just wanted to soak up everything you could ever read about Rabbits. So I don't you know, think... I, I think, Go ahead. I think Raising Rabbits the Modern Way is one of the greatest books I've ever read. Any well, topic. I, I love that Bob Whitman is, or Bob Bennett is still active. You know, he's up in Vermont now. He did a Rabicon for us a few years ago when he came out with one of his latest editions of of his book. And um he has he has withstood the test of time for sure. And and I remember every domestic rabbit magazine when I grew up, it said uh in the classified section, it wasn't like Bob Whitman or Bob sorry, I keep calling him Bob Whitman. Bob Bennett's My Famous Tans. Yes. Yeah. I never so, bought rabbits from him, but I bought rabbits locally, and I actually bought rabbits from the um, from the uh, East Coast as a kid. But the thing is, is I I always looked at Bob Bennett as uh, my motivation for getting into rabbits, and yeah, then and also like, of course my 4-H club. And he was like pre Facebook, so back then we didn't have social media. It was it was reading journals and reading books that 
got your name out there that that uh you know That's spread right. the good word exactly i agree with you so as a kid you know describe yourself you said you were about 11 when you got into rabbits you know what were you like were you like every other every other teenager you know or were you you know t- tell us about what it was like to be joe kim in your youth i, I mean I, I played competitive tennis i played uh i played chess i was on the chess team and we were in the we played we played tournaments all over the uh all over the all over our county actually we 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 had a competing school that was number one in the nation and we went over to play them and you know our goal was to beat them we beat like the third team but i think we got beat by their second and first team but it was it was i would say i was more you know i didn't do the cool kid stuff i wouldn't play football or i didn't play you know baseball or basketball i was more into tennis and i was into chess and then i started you know raising rabbits but then it wasn't like competing for rabbits that kept me inside of it. You know, once I joined a 4-H club, my 4-H leader, Gene, really interested me interested me into um, studying the 4-H manual and started competing in the uh, royalty contest on the county level and then on the state level. And she was she had a lot of confidence in me. It uh, it actually it was good for me. It made me it gave me more confidence as a human being, you know, and. I remember uh, the first year in the royalty contest, I placed sixth in the state. And Indiana is one of these states where there were like 40 or 50 contestants for each category. And I got sixth and I was so bummed out because Gene kept telling me, you got this, you're going to win this. And I thought I might win it, but I got sixth and I, I was so disappointed in myself. I went back and read that manual until I literally memorized every pad- every paragraph inside of there. And then I read Raising Rabbits the Modern Way again. And then I read another book by Bob Bennett. And I said, I'm gonna I'm gonna get this thing down. I want to really, really delve into rabbits and I want to know every parts of them. And I competed the next year in the royalty contest and I actually won it. But I I didn't really win it for myself. I actually really wanted to win it for Gene and Dave Dave Booth, my four H leader, because you know, they, they had such high expectations of me. I didn't really want to disappoint them. Totally. And you've, you've touched on that, that topic of mentorship, which we've brought up before on this podcast. Yes. Who were some of your mentors back then? I mean, obviously, Gene, but, you know, who were those adults that took you under their wing to share this incredible rabbit um, I would say I would say it's journey? Gene, I would say it's Gene and her sister, um, uh, sister Terry, sisters Terry and Marianne, and David Booth, who was my 4-H leader, and Caleb, Caleb Thomas, who's still a judge out there, and he was also involved with the club. And they were, they were the ones that were, you know, they were literally mentoring all the kids, teaching them about rabbits. And I had never been to a rabbit show, and I remember going to this rabbit show and having an ARBA judge judging. And I remember my first rabbit show, it was a 4-H show, and it was Oren Reynolds who came and judged our, um, who came and judged our show. I just thought he was a, a local judge, but I, he ends up being a legendary you know, figure, a judge, the DR editor, and you know, very involved with the ARBA. And I think I joined, joined the ARBA first at the age of 12. And I think, you know, eventually, eventually I, uh, I, I actually didn't go to high school in uh, Indiana. I went to boarding school in New Jersey and uh, there was another tan breeder named Jeffrey Feller, uh, Gary Fellers and his son, Jeffrey Fellers in that boarding school town actually raised hands. 
Tried. And uh, what I ended up doing is going through the three years and uh, at the Lawrenceville School. And then I went to college. And I remember being in college. And this is uh, when I was, I think, uh, 19 or 20 years old. So I had a, a gap between like 14 and 19 where I didn't have any rabbits, but I still got my DR and I was very involved with, you know, keeping up on the rabbit community because that was our only form of communication. There was no internet. There was no Facebook. There was no email, any of that. So and I remember, go, go ahead. And I remember uh, um, I started, you know, seeing who had the good tans and I was seeing, you know, who was, uh, who was still winning with the tans. And, and I remember uh, in college, I drove all the way up to St. Adele, Canada, and the top tan breeder in the country was a, a French Quebec um, a, a man by the name of Jacques Turcotte, Jacques and Lise Turcotte. And uh, there was also another great um, tan breeder uh, who imported a lot of rabbits from the UK named Klein St Clay Steinberger. He lived in uh, Connecticut. I went to go visit him. I got rabbits from uh, Jacques. And I had a very limited breeding program. I think I only had like 12 holes. But I still bought those rabbits and rented space in a garage, you know, right next to campus. And I kept these tans. And I think I went to one show. But, you know, I wasn't competitive because I, I couldn't – I just didn't have room to – room or the time to go to these shows. I just went to the show to hang out more, more than anything else. I don't think I even took any rabbits. I think that's really interesting that you bring up college and rabbits. You know, we see, I think in the past, uh, you know, rabbit kids, KV kids, they, they have a great career. And then when they go to college, they, they, they get out. And then they, they, a lot of them come back because there's a certain magic about this that you, you don't forget that you want to come back to. Um, and I think that today, I, th I think we see more college kids in rabbits that continue with rabbits. So um, you were actually one of those ones that, that did that back then. <clears throat> did your friends yeah. in college know about your rabbits? And, and how did they how did they perceive you? Like, hey, you just can't go out to the bars after after class because you've got to go take care of your rabbits. What, what is that like? Okay, okay. So this this gets more interesting. So I had four holes cages inside of my college girlfriend's dorm room and i kept my best rabbits inside of there in the dorm room and she wanted a rabbit so we got a mini lop and she had a mini lop inside of her dorm room we weren't supposed to have animals in the dorm room by the way and i also had three tans in the room they smelled so i mean it was it was it was awful so we basically you know lived in my dorm room which is in the same dorm and we kept those rabbits and we had a cat in there as well and that's what it kind of continued to the point where I mean, to the point where we couldn't really continue, you know, having rabbits in the dorm room. And when I graduated from college, I couldn't really I, I took a few of the rabbits to Manhattan. I lived there and I had this walk down townhouse and behind there was a patio. And I tried to keep, you know, four cages of rabbits there. And it didn't really work out because I was working literally 60 to 80 hours a week and came back and you know, it was just burning out. So it was basically a choice between pursuing my career or, you know, keeping rabbits and just, you know, trying to trying to find time for a hobby. And I, I didn't have the time for the hobby. So what I did is I, I just basically pursued my career and the career didn't really last that long. I, I mean, I suffered burnout, but but at the same time, the, it, it was a it was time well spent because it wasn't a career where I think people literally work until they're 65. I was basically done until when I was uh, 
32 years old. And then I moved to California and I had some property out there. I had, you know, I think six acres. And I said, there's got to be a way I can get back into rabbits. So I had um, a shed in the back and I filled it with six, six holes. And I remember, uh, I remember um, calling up my four, I, I called up Caleb Thomas up and I said, I want to get some tans again. Who's got some good tans? And he said, where are you, Joe? And I said, I'm living in Southern California. And he said, I have a friend out there and you need to call him. And, you know, he'll, he should be able to guide you somewhere because I, I don't know. I don't know who's got any tans, you know, near your area. And I remember that's where I met uh, Randy Shoemaker. He said to call Randy Shoemaker and I called him up. Uh, Randy's like, who is this? And I said, I'm a friend of Caleb's and I live in Southern California and I'm looking for some tans. And, you know, Randy doesn't talk much. He just said, hmm, I judged these rabbits out in Iowa. And there was a guy who had the name of uh, Eugene Johnston. He had the best type tans that I've seen. And you should contact him. So I contacted him and got, I remember, exactly six tans. And I remember breeding them together. And literally out of the first cross, I mean, my first litter, there was a really nice tan. And uh, I took her around and uh, first show out there, she wins best in show. And uh, I kept uh, asking, asking, uh, you know, the judges, I said, what could be better? What could be better? (laughs) And they said, well, what could be better? You know, it could be, it could have more leg. It could be rounder over the hip. That rabbit was pretty damn round, by the way. And, uh, (laughs) and I still remember her name because she had a name and, uh, and then they said, and she's the logo on the, uh, on the tan club, uh, the logo right now. She's the rabbit that we took the, um, the logo off, you know, logo off of. And, uh, I remember asking, uh, Randy Shoemaker, I said, what could be better? And he goes, well, the color could be deeper. Uh, chest could be wider. And I, I go, well, who's got rabbits? Who's got, you know, better color and better, wider chest. And he said, I think you've got Gene, Eugene Johnson's got the best color and he's got the widest chest. So I was kind of out of luck. So I started doing more research and you got to remember the internet was, it was, it's in its, in its infancy stage. We had dial up internet back then in the year 2000 and using dial up, I contacted a guy that I met at the 1990 national tan show in the UK. Alan, you know him. His name is Derek Medlock. Of course. I can't, I contacted him out there. He is like, you know, the godfather of the UK hobby. He knows he every is. breed. He's a fantastic judge, but he's also a tan man. He's raised, you know, tans forever. And he brought me imports in 1990. And I said to him, I said, Derek, I'm trying to get better color on my tans. I'm trying to get wider chest. Where can I go? And he steered me over to um, a guy by the name of Phil Harrison, who had uh, a rabbitry name out in the UK named, um, name uh albany stock albany stud and he said you know phil is phil harrison's extremely type a very diligent and very detail oriented and extremely competitive he does not take i cannot make it better so i said i met the perfect guy i can talk to about rabbits and we and at that point you know i just picked up the landline i called him on the phone for hours i said this is what i've got and I don't want to make my rabbits all 
Dutch Briny, excuse me, but like the the type used to be they call it like the type like a Dutch. The tans used to want to be, you know, the body type was very similar to a Dutch. And I said, I need tans that sit up. I don't I don't want the tans that are, you know, like the uh like the like the Dutch style out there. And he goes, Oh, mine stand up. So what I did is I planned a visit out to the UK and actually this is before I went out to the UK. I I took the risk and I said, Will you send me some tans? I'm looking for color and he said oh i've got cola all right <laughs> and when he when he sent the rabbits over they were they they surprised me they were they weren't competitive on the uh the u.s show table because they had some type faults that were that were that were that would be you know faulted you know severely but they were a little some were a little longer but the thing is is they weren't heavy boned which which I didn't want we were refined bone they had a, they had some arch to it but they had amazing color and they had amazing fur on them as well it was a short very close to the body and when it sat because it sat so close to the body the markings looked like they were chiseled they were so clean so i said i i'm going to cross these rabbits to the Eugene Johnston uh, american style body the body type and i'm gonna i you know i was gonna i was willing to invest a lot of time and you know several generations into into making these crosses work but on my f1 crosses and my f2 crosses i was getting rabbits that was that i was able to take take to the show table and they were pretty darn good you know in my eyes they were pretty round and they had color like no other and <laughs> You, you talk about getting back into rabbits and, and you went really far. You went all the way to UK, for example, to, you know, better your game. And you talked about, you know, earlier in this episode about your, your success as a youth and you were working at youth contests, you had tans, but what was different about coming back into rabbits as an adult? Did, did you want to do more than just, um, I mean, obviously you can't compete in youth contests, but how was your approach in rabbits different than it was as a kid when it came to rabbits and, uh, success on the show well as a kid my goal was to win you know win a royalty contest so i ended up i think i i won uh i won i won like the uh the prince title in in uh in indiana and then i was old enough to compete as a duke and i went to the arba convention in in uh in uh syracuse and i ended up winning the duke title out there for me that was my goal you know, the rabbits were kind of secondary. The royalty contests were, were the primary focus as a kid. You know, and those royalty contests don't exist for for adults. So for me, it was to make, you know, an excellent rabbit. And for me, there was a another woman out in California. She would win all the time. And she kept talking about this word, shock value. And she said, rabbits don't win on balance. They win on shock value. And she had these angoras with immense length and immense texture and huge balls of wool out there. And she would win all the time. And who and was, was that? Betty Chu. Betty Chu. Oh, the, the famous Betty Chu, you know, she's still at it. Who we so jokingly, I, who we jokingly, jokingly and you and, and she does too, that she is your mom. She is not. Okay. <laughs> all right. Get the, get the story straight because it's okay. been out there. Is Betty, Betty Chu your mother? Betty Chu told everybody that she was my mother, but in reality, she's, she was at that point probably one of the few Asian women in rabbits. And I was probably one of the few Asian guys that raised rabbits. And she told everybody that I was her son. So everybody kept saying, are you out to beat your mother? Hey, you beat your mother. 
And I said, no, she's not my mother. Her name is Chu. And they, she, she, he goes, oh, I thought she was divorced after she met your father. No, 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 no. Betty Chu is not my mother. But I love Betty dearly. She's an immense competitor, raises great rabbits. She sets a very high standard for herself. And in that way, I think, you know, I, 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 kind, of, I kind of looked at her and said, I want to have shock value, too. And I want to do what, what kind of what Betty did. I want to try to win a best in show at convention. So, you know, she was one of the people I kind of looked at and said, I kept, her level of achievement was immense at that point in my eyes. And I said, I kind of want to follow in her footsteps, but I'm not going to do it with a wool breed. <laughs> yeah, way too much. So yeah. let's go back. By the way, you're talking about importing rabbits from the UK. You're talking like late 90s, early 2000s, right? We're talking 2000. So 2000. So yes. my first memory of you, Joe, by the way, is in 2001 at the Del Mar convention. Yes. Um, it was it was California's or California Rabbit KB Show's very first convention that they hosted. And that was in Del Mar. I see you there. Do you come into 01 with an entry or are you there as a spectator? Uh, I wasn't that happy with my... Uh, I, I think I'm never happy with my entry. I'm still not happy with my entries and I've never gone to a convention confident. I'm going to do well, or I've never gone to local shows that, you know, confident because I, all I see is faults in these rabbits. And I remember going to, uh, going to, going to uh, Del Mar. It's the only, only show I went there and I literally entered 20 tans and I said, we'll see what they like. And I, I entered it. I was, I had, I, you know, I was pretty successful in how I did at the convention there. And at that point I said, how do I make them better? And I, I, <laughs> the goals, the bar kept, I kept setting the bar higher and higher because I was out to try to win best of breed. I can, you know, at, at Del Mar and I did win best of breed, but, uh, but at that point, the, uh, the imports really helped out a lot. I think um, I entered. 10 black junior does and they placed first through ninth and 11th in that class. Yeah. And there was, there was like 50 rabbits in that class. And I, but you know, mine was, mine were one fifth of them. So I had a large entry because I lived there. I lived an hour and a half from that, you know, that showroom. But then I, you know, I went to that showroom and I just saw so many great other people's great rabbits. Betty had great Angoras there. Bob Cook had that beautiful lilac there. Uh, Joy Bramall had that dwarf and Manuel Hidalgo had that New Zealand out there that looked great. And I was just, I was just thinking it's for me, I wasn't familiar with all the other breeds. So they, there's something about those, those winning rabbits. They, they popped, they looked great. Do you for think me, that, that, yeah. that, that feel like that energy that you felt, was that kind of, um, was that indicative of your time in rabbits, like coming back? I mean, I remember my first convention, I had that same, like, like, Oh my God, everything is just, in, like you, you can't soak it all up. You, all you want to do is just be there night and day at the convention. Do you think that some of the energy was 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 being new, or do you still feel that energy today when you walk into a convention? Always, I'm I'm standing up. I'm literally on my feet all day, all night. You know, literally visiting with people. And I remember uh, the Del Mar convention was my in 2001 was my first convention. You know, since 1983. And it was great. Even as an adult, the rabbit community is so welcoming. And you can go, you can go into the convention, you know, the, the host hotel bar, and you can make 20 friends in the period of an hour and get to know people. And the friends that I made there and the friends that I made progressively over the years, I'm still friends with them. 
and I think uh, social media gives you the, um, the the ability to still communicate with these people. And I think uh, I think a lot of them are gone. You know, they've passed away, but the, I'd say most of them are still around, and I see them. And of course, we have new people that pop up every year. We love that. So, 2003, we we Brian and I opened this episode with highlights from 2003 in the world and also in rabbits. What t- talk about your 2003? I mean, not like in October, but what happened in your life leading up to 2003 and and that that big year for you? T- tell us all about it. Okay, so I lived in I lived in Southern California, and I had a girlfriend, and she was from Oregon. So we decided to move to Oregon together. Or else she she was going to go move up you know move up to Oregon without me because she she wanted to go back to uh, live near near her parents and I think Alan you know this story so I bought some property out there I had some acreage and I had a barn built and I said how do I make this barn ideal least amount of work most amount of efficiency and I remember moving up there and I, with all my things and everything and I remember I said. Oh my God, I have a convention entry here. But the thing is, is they're literally in the nest box. This was in the summer of 2003. And I remember I had cages that had to come up. And Alan, Alan Messick, you were kind and gracious enough to drive my SUV with all the rabbits, you know, in carriers. I mean, I had culled them down, but with all the, you know, all the breeding rabbits and all the, the potential show rabbits. And you literally carried a nest box with the winner of the 2003 convention. All the, you drove it all the way up from Southern California, all I, the way up the. Honestly, when I hear you talk about it now, we've talked about it before. Like I still get chills because I was just like a kid. You know, I wasn't a judge. I was a registrar. I was like, okay, this guy named Joe Kim. He's moving from Malibu. He's going to Oregon, and we're going to move all this stuff up there. And I drove your your black Yukon. It was full of your rabbits. Yes. And um, riding shotgun were nest boxes. And if I had known then that in that nest box was this convention winner, I, I definitely would not have left your driveway in Malibu. <laughs> it's a pretty crazy story. It is a crazy story. I didn't know it was going to be in that box either. But, uh, but I mean, I do appreciate the fact that uh, that you carried those nest boxes up there and made, none of those rabbits died. I remember that because I was so nervous that some, something was going to die and I, everything survived. And I actually had a, you know, a decent convention entry. I think I had 10, 10 rabbits or 12 rabbits that I entered into convention that year. Well, that's and a good all... point. You know, when people move and I've done this when we've moved and like the animals just take time to acclimate to their new environment. And I yeah, always go to, so, so yeah, they, they just don't, it just takes some time for them to settle and then for you to figure out how they do in their new environment. So how did you acclimate your Malibu rabbits to a wet, you know, humid, uh, colder environment up in Oregon? And then in 2003, you did this, by the way, when you, you, you won the big one. So what was that like? And, and how did you obsess about it to the point of, you know, even coming up with a convention entry? Cause I, like, I think even coming up with rabbits to even show at a convention during a year you moved, that's, that's quite the feat. I think, I think, um, you know, tans are one of the unique breeds where um, the optimum age is between 16 to 20 weeks when you show when you show the tans. The juniors are always the ones that win at convention. They have cleaner markings, the shorter coats. They're more refined in bone. They're leggier as well. And I think um, at that point, 
at that by 2003, I'd figured that out just by, you know, trial and error. And I said, I'm going to breed all these babies to be 16 to 20 weeks old for a convention. And that's why you had nest boxes, literally, of conven my convention entry there. So regardless of what the temperature is, I mean, it's so unlike mini Rex, for example, Every single rabbit, every single tan I took to convention was finished because it was between 16 to 20 weeks. I think it's actually between 14 to 20 weeks, you know, where they can be finished. So tans, you can breed by age and you will have a finished entry. You just can cull on type and cull on color and cull on fur to get them out there. So they acclimated pretty fast. They do, in, in Oregon weather, they fall apart faster. They'll fall apart sometimes before 20 weeks. But I remember getting them there, putting the does in there, just praying that the does would nurse. I think you actually nursed the babies for me, didn't you, in the car? I don't, I don't remember that, but I wouldn't be surprised because I was given one instruction. Alan, don't let anything die on this yeah. trip. And that was a long trip because we followed uh, – we followed – during that time, KW Cages had like a – it wasn't a semi, but it was like a really big like 30-foot U-Haul that uh, KWK just used to, you know, to go to shows in. And so I followed that, that vehicle. And by the way, if you've ever driven on the five freeway from California through it, Oregon, it's, it's, it's uphill, right? So that oh, KW oh big goodness. rig was like, it was, it was yeah. slow. It was putting, like it was puffing black smoke. Like it was a long drive. And I've done that drive a lot of times since it's never taken as long as, as that year. I mean, KW was awesome though. I had, Literally the most ideal setup up there, all single high hanging cages. I had 92 holes and I could see every rabbit when I fed them. You know, the, you know, the, I had 14 gauge floors. I had the systematic feeders, which still haven't changed back then. I mean, why change things that still work? I mean, those feeders haven't changed in 20 years. It was, we've talked about this and other people have too, before this podcast, you know, when we talk about, we get in those circles of, of rabbit breeders and we talk about the best barns like the most efficient as you said efficient so you don't have to spend time cleaning so you don't have to time doing that labor intensive stuff so you can actually focus on your game right. you had at that time in vernonia like the best barn to this day that i've ever seen in my life i mean it was like you said single level the deepest pits concrete oh the aisles the the j feeders automatic watering system the heated um, automatic water system that was the most convenient because in malibu you didn't freeze and up there you moved to an environment where you actually have ice right Right. I had, I had the, um, I had the, uh, the, uh, the, the flush system from KW in Malibu, but you know, in, in, it was a great system for where I was. It was dry out there. It didn't get too hot. The temperature ranged from about 50 degrees to about 80 degrees. So I didn't really have to worry about, you know, things freezing out there or things getting too cold out there. And there were more challenges to, living in an Oregon. I lived at 700 feet. So our pipes did freeze out there. We got down to, you know, the teens and 20 degrees. And I remember I used, uh, you know, the, the freeze X water system out there and it actually worked beautifully out there. We had a, a recirculating hot, you know, water system that was heated during the winter. Nothing, nothing ever froze. Rabbits always had water. They were all in great condition, you know, year round. It was brilliant. It, it, it did its job so that you could do your job as a breeder. So let's That's go back right. to 2003. <laughs> Remarkably, somehow you've moved from Southern California to Oregon with an entry on <laughs> the passenger seat of a Yukon that I drove to Oregon. Okay. You have timely bred these rabbits for convention. So you get to convention, you actually have an entry of 10 rabbits. Talk about best of breed judging of tans during the 03 convention. Oh, God. Okay. So 
we had one of the best tan judges out there, which is, you know, I, I looked at it and I said, this is great. That, that was uh, Dr. Chris Hayhow. He's a, he's a very good tan judge. And uh, we had him judging out there. And I remember during this judging, you know, my does were the best and something horrible happened to me. I mean, not, not me, but my rabbits out there. So I had two rabbits. I had one with the best color that I've ever bred. And then I had another rabbit with the best type that I had ever bred. And I was always just wondering, like, why can't I have that type on that, on that, you know, the rabbit with that color? And I remember the rabbit with the type, it had chewed up its front foot at, in the showroom. She got nervous or the rabbit next to it. Something happened. But she had this big patch of fur, about an inch in diameter, gone off of her, fur, off of her front left leg. And I was just thinking, oh, my God, my chances are ruined here. I lost one of my two best rabbits here. So the other rabbit, I remember watching the judging. It was a junior doe class. There's about 50 rabbits in the class. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm thinking I, I, I didn't see my rabbit up there. I, you know, I'm, I keep close track of what, how many rabbits are left. And there are five does left up there. And I, the only rabbit I saw was uh, one of my does up there, but not one of my best ones. And the other rabbit was gone. You know, the color rabbit was gone. And then I just remember him get, getting down to the judging. And I'm thinking like, shit, that rabbit's going to end up, it, it, it's already lost its class. You know, I'm done. I'm doomed. And then all of a sudden I see uh, Dr. Hayhow fumbling around and he goes, grabs a carrier and he pulls this rabbit out. I guess obviously he'd seen this rabbit and he liked it enough that he put it away somewhere. It wasn't even in the show pens. Then he pulled it out and said, your first place black junior doe is JKGO. Her name was Go-Go Dancer. I just put G-O in the ear. And I said, oh, my God, I, I might have a chance to actually win this breed because I thought that rabbit had, you know, gone off the table. And she ended up winning best of breed. And I was, you know, thrilled, of course, to win best of breed. And I remember um, I was just still, like, kicking myself, thinking – you know, I have a rabbit with better type than her, but this rabbit's got pretty good type, but not as good as type as the other one. It wasn't complete in my, in my, in my view, but then it went up there for best in show. And uh, I remember the group judge, it was Eric Bengston. And Alan, I don't know if you know this about me. All I see are the faults in my rabbits. I just oh, don't. No, Joe, I know. <laughs> I, I, Anyone that's been any time, you've, you've already said it. Every time you went into a showroom, it was, all right, that's great, but how could I do better? So yes, or, <laughs> you are I obsessed. Tell you, I could tell you all day what's wrong with you know my rabbits, or you know one particular rabbit. I have a hard time just looking at it and saying this is a good rabbit, and that's why I would make an awful judge. Awful <laughs> it makes you very I, real, Joe. Oh, I never wanted to be a judge. I didn't want to tell people what's wrong with their rabbits. That's one of the reasons I shouldn't. I never want to get. I, I you know when people ask me what do you think about this rabbit, I kind of. I kind of freeze because I don't want to tell them what's wrong with the rabbit because uh, it's, it's the rabbit. If they like it, I don't want to tell them what's wrong with it. You know? But anyway, well, well wait, wait, let's go back to that. Oh, three. So you win best of breed under Dr. Hayao. You are at best in show in 2003 at the convention in Wichita. Where are you sitting by the way, uh, during that ceremony, best in show sitting, ceremony? I don't remember who I was with. I remember I had a cell phone. I was one of the early people to get a cell phone and I had a cell phone. And I was, uh, I was, we didn't text, we called. Remember back then texting wasn't a big thing. So yeah, I was on the, what? I, I kept talking to uh, one of the, one of my buddies, uh, Jamie Green. 
and you know he he sat somewhere else and i sat somewhere else and i i remember uh i remember before this judging went up i remember uh seeing kathy shilda's white rex and i was thinking that's a pretty damn nice rabbit and, you know it was pretty deep uh you and know, she was in your group oh she was in my group and i thought geez i'm dead you know because <laughs> all i could see was what's wrong with my rabbit but then I got kind of fortunate that rabbit popped out and she she wanted to have her day. She was up on her, you know, up on her front legs, you know, running around. And I was just thinking, all right, you know, she's, she's looking pretty damn good up there. And uh, I remember the group judge was another, you know, judge that I highly respect, which is Eric Bankston. And uh, he went through all the rabbits and ended up picking the tan. And I was thrilled. What was your reaction? Like you're sitting there in the audience, like all of us were. I remember it was very vivid for me that that best in show. It was like ble- It was um. It was like a theater setting, correct? And a stage. Yeah, I said I'm not going to win. There's no way I'm going <laughs> to so, win. Okay, so when when Eric Bankston announces best of group in this group is the Tan, what do you do? I said I cannot believe I freaking won. But at the same time, I said, there's no way I'm going to win Best in Show. There's got to there's going to be something better that's going to beat me. You know, I don't know the standards of other breeds and I didn't I didn't know how to evaluate other breeds. But I I was convinced that I was not going to win. And by the way, what other breeds won groups that year? uh, There was a there was a Jersey Wooly that Doug King had picked and there was a. my my uh my my quasi mom Betty Chu had her English Angora up there, and there was a uh, a Siamese Satin up there, owned by the Peraltas, I believe, right? Pardon? Owned by the Peraltas? I don't. It it might have been. I think it was. It was. <laughs> I think it was, <laughs> it was Reed and Larry. Yeah, yeah. That's right. I, that's right. There were which which was weird because like a Siamese Satin winning best of breed, at, and in those days, this is like pre mini Satin, so Satins were a very competitive breed. And right. certainly like leaders of the sixth class in those days and a Siamese one. It was, I remember that moment when I, when, when the Peraltas won, I was like, wow, a Siamese of all things. That's, that's, that's. That's like winning best of breed tan with like a blue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You could await that. Yes. So we have, uh, we have Siamese satin, we have Jersey Willie, we have English Angora and the tan, of course. So yes. who judges best in show and tell us about that. What? Well, one of the top judges in the ARBA, you know, comes out. It's Mike, Mike, uh, Mike Avazing, you know, and I'm just thinking, like, I wonder if there's something wrong with that Jersey Woolly. I hope there's something wrong with that Jersey Woolly. And I hope there's something wrong with that English Angora. And I certainly hope there's something wrong with that Siamese Satin because, you know, I want to win. But at the same time, I didn't know if I could beat those other rabbits up there. (laughs) But then Mike was up there out there judging you know he's very methodical gives every rabbit a chance he looks him over multiple times out there and i was just thinking at that point i was just not i was i wasn't my head wasn't clear at that point and i remember jamie kept calling on the cell phone he goes you're gonna win this you're gonna win this and i said no i'm not stop calling me that's what i remember (laughs) on your cell phone before all of us had cell phones (laughs) yeah and then uh and then uh Mike announced best in show and he picked the tan. And of course, Jamie, I walked by him. He goes, I told you. And uh, I remember walking up towards the stage and I think, uh, uh, you know, Randy Shoemaker was up there. He's a friend of mine. And, and he had, uh, he, he had, I think he had picked a youth, youth group or youth bust and show. And I remember walking up to him and I said, 
you know, I had a rabbit with better type, but the thing is, is this one definitely had co better color. And Randy looks at me and goes, just shut up and just tell everybody it's the best rabbit you bred. It's a nice rabbit. <laughs> so I, <laughs> typical, you know, Randy Shoemaker, but uh, you know, reaction up there. So I walked up there, uh, received my award and I, I literally kind of, it, it was kind of a blackout moment. I don't, I don't really remember what happened next, but, uh, well, was... there's a funny story. <clears throat> I want to talk about Betty again. Like your, your mom, right? She's oh, not your mom, God, but she's your mom. Part. But by the way, she, she won group that year with a, with an English Angora that was a buck. And she still talks about it to this day because bucks don't win right. necessarily those, those big shows. So she gets up there and I remember her vividly on the mic, uh, at the best in show stage, best in show has been announced. What on earth does your, <laughs> does your rabbit Asian mom say, uh, on the mic? She goes, she said something on the longs of the line, like, I'd like to congratulate my son, Joe Kim. And you wonder why we all think that she's not your mom? Like, come on. Oh, she like, announced it she, to everybody. She... Oh, people had asked me in the bar later that night, you must have pissed off your mother. And I said, no, she's not my mother. And no, I did not piss her off. She was very gracious. <laughs> I, I love Betty, though. She's great. So what happens after Best in Show? Like, clearly, you, you, you win the big one. And then what happens between 03 and, like, 06? Because... A lot of us in Rabbits now, if we're newer, um, we know you contemporary, but there was a period where you weren't there. So did you get out of Rabbits, and, and why did you uh, decide to you know, focus? No, I kept – I was, I was still showing in 04, 05, 06. And, you know, 06 got to the point where um, I had – in my eyes, I had, I had bred, you know, a very nice tan. It was probably the, the nicest one I had bred. And I, you know, I thought that year I brought one rabbit. I said, if this rabbit doesn't win it, I, I, I don't deserve to win best of breed. So I brought one rabbit and I, I gambled it. I said, I don't want any of my other rabbits even beating this rabbit because I want this rabbit to win. So I entered one black junior buck and, you know, I think uh, Paul Kyle, a guy I didn't even know. But he raised English spots, you know, and I remember uh, I was just thinking if he judges spots, he can pick out a good tan. I had confidence that he would, you know, pick a good tan. And he he made this buck uh, best of breed. And then and he said that... to me afterwards, he goes, was that your rabbit? And I said, yep. He goes, you didn't think I'd find it, did you? And I said, no, 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 I did. And he goes, no, you didn't. You were shaking behind the table. I could see you. I remember all that. Sounds Those like Paul Kyle. Oh, yeah. He would call, he would call you out. Yeah, and I remember, uh, I you know that was that was the year I, I I thought that I had a shot to you know to win it again. It didn't make it. It didn't even win the group at that point. And I you know, and I just it's one of the lessons you learn is you can have the best rabbit you bred, um, and it you know you might you might not even win best of breed. You might not win best of group. You know, and you have to get through a lot of hurdles in order to win the big one. I totally agree with you. And I think that resonates with a lot of our listeners, but on the same, same token, you went there with one rabbit. So what would you say to someone that said like, this is the best rabbit I raised this year and conventions coming up. Um, how do you speak about like, it only takes one to win. Do you, do you, do you agree with that? Yes, I agree. I remember after the judging was all over, I remember um, I, you know, I, I, I grabbed, Randy, Randy Shoemaker, and I grabbed Kayla Thomas, and I said, I want you guys to look at this tan and see if you guys like it. And I put that rabbit up in the table. They looked at it, and Caleb looked at me. Caleb Thomas looks at me and goes, 
that's a 100 point tan. And at that point I said, I don't need to win best in show. You know, I got two of the best judges and they said, it, it, that's, that's the best hand ever, you know? And I, that was a satis big satisfaction there. This is a, Caleb was uh, one of my youth 4-H leaders, and, you know, he's one of the premier. For him to come out and say 100.10, I just thought, boy, you know, <laughs> I, don't need a, I don't need a better opinion than that. And Randy, What a nod to your past. I mean, he, the, Caleb Thomas is telling you this. Meanwhile, back when you were a kid at 11, his wife, not wife at the time, but Gene was your 4-H leader. I mean, how did that feel to you? Got it a close sense of connection. You know, I just think uh, it's a hobby where you can be involved when you're 12 years old, you can come back and you're 38 years old and you're still looking up to these mentors. You want their, you want their opinions because you've respected them as a kid and you're, you respect them as an adult and you know, their opinion means everything. You know, if he came out and said, it's all right, then I'll just think like shit, you know, maybe, maybe I have to try to, you know, realign, my ideal of perfection and try to figure out what's wrong with that rabbit because maybe I don't got it right. You know, Joe, I'm going to share a story now because you are, you are, you are a modest guy and every, every rabbit you've ever made, even at its pinnacle, you were there to fault it. And Jamie Green actually said this, he, he used the word potent. Your, your rabbits were, were so potent. You had revolutionized the breed, the tan breed back then. And when, when you got out of rabbits in 06, 07, um, I was fortunate enough to uh, pick up eight of your kind of like the last remaining tans. And I remember it was at a California state convention. It was the spring of 06. And I took home eight of these. I said, I've never raised tans. I don't even know a, a darn thing about them. Like I, I've listened to you talk about them. They've, they've been on the center stage. Like they've won convention. Like this is a lot, but Hey, I want to get a judge's license someday. So I need to raise something I don't know anything about. So I took your eight leftover tans home and, and I raised one baby that year and she went on in 07. You were there by the way, um, to win best of breed at the convention under, under Bill Patrick. I mean, oh your, God, your yeah. right. Your line was potent. I, I raised those rabbits for a few years. I love them. They're tans. I, I didn't really, I, it's not I didn't like them. I just didn't understand them until I raised them. And that we've talked about this in podcasts previously with, with guests who are talking about pursuing judge licenses. Like you don't know a breed until you raise a breed. And I learned so much about tans and full arch type moving breeds um, from those moments um, as a tan breeder. And I, I'm very fortunate to say that I, I did win best of breed, but that was all a, a nod to you. I mean, your rabbits, as Jamie Green said, were potent. I mean, they were so darn good that they bred true. And um, I, I just want to thank you for that because it, it had a major impact on my understanding of rabbits, especially in full archetype, which was totally foreign to me at the time. So I oh, hope that you, I hope I can express to you the, the gratitude I have that that you're you're very welcome. Later. And I was and I was extremely proud of you that that you had actually taken those rabbits that nobody else wanted because the ones that nobody else wanted were the rabbits that were the breeders. They were the ones that were the proven breeders. They weren't the young showy rabbits that everybody else wanted. You ended up getting the um, the brood does and the herd bucks, which are old and had fallen apart. Well, and remember, so I won best of breed with, I called her Rhea, which right. is a, you know, a, a, a bird. And her mother was JK, was it SK? She was a former 
she was one of your former national winners, but she was old at the time, like kind of past her prime, like probably not a doe that was going to have a litter. And I believe I, I fostered, I think she had one kit in the litter and I fostered it to a dwarf doe for gosh sakes. Like I, oh it's, it's always the reverse. Now I always, I take dwarf dwarf babies and I put them on other does, but I think a dwarf raised that, that doe that you're, or that you know, Rhea for me that you're, do you remember the doe? Yeah. The she, was nice. she was very nice. Huh? Yeah. She was, she was one of your old ones, but certainly one that was potent. Oh, no, so, no, no. I'm talking about your rabbit. As, oh. <laughs> uh, Rio was very nice. She was fun. I, I love that rabbit. I still have my, my, my tan awards are, are behind me in my little office here oh, um, from that year. I love it. Yeah, I love it's it. really fun. So, but, so you get out of rabbits, all right? And, and after that year, and, and you do your thing, and you come back. And you're back now. How long did you take off uh, from, from rabbits before you, you got back in on your, on your, new, on your new journey? How many years was okay. it? Okay, so I don't know if you remember this. So after I got out of rabbits, I got really into fitness. Do you remember? Do you remember? I, I, you know, I would show up and all of a sudden, you know, I was ripped and I was. I remember. I, good. That's a great point. I remember you in two thousand eight in Louisville. We all went to dinner. I was like, "Whoa, Joe Kim is buff. Like he is. He is ripped. What happened? Like he's not doing rabbits anymore, but he's clearly uh, he's biked around the world or something." Yeah, I. You know, I always thought that rabbits and uh, and uh, and and my health had an inverse relationship because I got so focused on my rabbits, I never took care of myself. And then at that point, I started working on fitness, and then I got into competitive cycling. I think in 2010, and I I started racing the masters category on road bikes, you know, and doing these stage races, three day stage races, and you know, local, you know, local races around here in Oregon, which is a big cycling community out here. And I'll tell you, I have never worked so hard. I mean, I literally trained, you know, hours upon hours. I was on my bike for, I don't know, a couple hundred miles every week, you know, training to be better and better. And my weight started dropping and dropping. But the thing is, is the best I ever did as a master's category cyclist was a third place. And I just looked at it and said, my God, this is like something where I don't have a lot of ability at because I worked this hard and I can't, the best I can do is third. So in a master's category, however, yeah, master's, well, (laughs) maybe qualify that. It it means like 40 years and people that are 40 and older. Whatever. It's it's, it's an age category. (laughs) It's a total reverse from rabbits. So when when you get back in, like what's what's different now when you get back in? And what by the way, why did you decide to get back in rabbits? Okay. So something uh very traumatic happened to me in uh in 2016. Um so my I'm I'm very nearsighted and my because of that nearsightedness, my um my retina decided to detach in my right eye. And uh it detached. I had surgery. They fixed it. And one month later, it detached again. So I lost a lot of vision in my right eye. And it's not safe enough for me to be on a bike on the, on the road. You know, I could get I could get hit by a car and I can't see the potholes very well. But I could still see, you know, pretty well close up. I could see rabbits. So I remember um, in 2000, uh, I think it was 2000, was it 2015? Where, where, where they had the Portland convention or was it 16 yeah, 15 or 17? Was, no, 15 was Portland. Yes. Okay. This is before I detached my retina. And I remember um, 
the ARBA convention was in Portland and I didn't, I just showed up to the showroom totally unannounced. I hadn't contacted anybody. I remember walking around the showroom. I'm just thinking, who the heck are these people? I don't, I didn't recognize anybody. And it took like maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes for me to find somebody I knew. Then I ran into like Cheryl Ang Lang. She said, Oh, hi, Joe, how are you doing? You know, she's very mellow, like usual. I ran into Eric Stewart and then I made my way around, found Jamie Green. I found Randy. And I think I found you too, Alan, you know, walking around the showroom. But then I was just thinking, I kind of miss this community. You know, I was really close to this community. And the same people are the same people I, that, that have been around this community have been around forever. And then when I detached that retina in 2016, my cycling was done. I said, my God, you know, I, I need to do something and I need to get back into my interests. And then I got back into rabbits in 2017. And that's what actually, you know, it, it, it took a lot of, it, it took a lot of, you know, I'm glad I went to the 2015 Portland convention or else I would have never, I, I wouldn't have felt that sensation of being around my old friends again and feeling like that excitement in the showroom at convention. And then what happened to me in 2016 with the detached retina, I, I came up to 2017 sitting around my house thinking like, I got to find something, an interest, another, you know, I got to find a path training with, uh, on my bike anymore. And that's when I got back into rabbits and I, I, I looked for tans again and I got back into that breed. Yeah, no wonder <clears throat> it is your breed. Um, looking back, though, it, you had a very interesting break from rabbits and a re-entry in rabbits. And during that time, I like to call it the Facebook generation that, right. that, that came about. How are rabbits different now and the ARBA different now as a showman, as, a, as someone that's, you know, that, that's wanting to be successful? In this? What's different now because of Facebook than when it was when you left rabbits in like – I think social media has kind of reshaped, um, reshaped the, uh, the social interactions. Everything is real time and everybody's connected on, on, on Facebook. So, I mean, there's, there's some friendships I've made that I didn't even know the person, but they were like Facebook friends and they start commenting and they start liking and I start liking their posts. And I'm thinking like, who is this person? They raised some pretty nice rabbits and I want to see the rabbits and, you know, you, you develop friendships on Facebook and then they become real life friendships or else there's on the on the reverse side, you have real life friendships that become Facebook friendships, too. And I think there's some, you know, there's positives and there's also negatives that come along with that. I think, you know, you see a lot more clicks form and, you know, people people they start congregating as, you know, as friends and you can kind of you can I think it's. It, there's good and there's bad, but I, I don't think it just exists in the rabbit world. I, I think it exists even in like the political, you know, the the stage of this last election. You know, it was just driving me crazy with, you know, Trump versus Biden and all these, you know, local, you know, local voices. But then you start to see that kind of filter down into the rabbit community. You see that in the dog community. I think you see it in many communities out there. Totally true. And, and you know, when Brian and I started this podcast, our goal was to bring some positivity back uh, during a time when we're not all there in the showroom or going to dinner afterwards. We're just not as together as we once were. So, um, and, and, but Facebook, however, is still the means at, at which we get together. So 
instead of focusing on the negative, like tell us like what people can do, what rabbit and KV breeders can do to use social media, particularly Facebook, because that does seem to be the platform for our community. How can we use Facebook in a positive means, especially during this time to, to uplift, educate and inspire uh, so that we can get back to what we love, which is coming. How, what, what would your advice? You know, the, Ideal of perfection is all in the um, eye of the beholder. Um, you know, people will always have a different opinion of what is good and what is bad. And I have my own opinion of what a good rabbit looks like, and it's not going to be consistent with uh, with everybody else. I, I don't. I don't even think the three of us will necessarily agree on what the exact perfection of what a what a what an animal will would be. But I have confidence both of you are pretty close to to uh, you know to to the way I view it and. I think I think what I can kind of credit is the fact that we've been around rabbits for so long and we've we're familiar with some of these, you know, legendary breeders like the Fibber McGee's out there, the Robert Crawford's, the Johnny Hoppers out there that kind of set the uh, set the bar for for what other breeders aspire to be. And they're they're masters in their own respective breeds. And I always look at them and I say, what is the common denominator that these people had? You know what? They raise different breeds. There's Florida Whites, and there's New Zealands, there's Californians. But what did these people have in common with their rabbits? That uh, that 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 kind of, that that is the common denominator. And for me, what I see is these rabbits, whether they're you know, as, as they call them, the compact breeds like a Florida White or a longer you know a, a rabbit that's got a little more length to it. You know, commercial type Johnny Hoppers and Robert Crawford is they they all kind of focus on a lot of depth and they had the right top line and they all they all had a high point that's you know behind the knees and a super deep round loin and they have a a very very distinct but you know very a great beautiful what I call a beautiful turn over the hips some people call it chopped but the thing is is I, I didn't set that standard that standard is passed down from the Crawfords, the Hoppers, and, you know, the, the Fibber McGee's. And, you know, some of the, some of the things that I'm seeing on Facebook is that a lot of people think that their breed is unique and they should have a, you know, a specialized type. But the thing is, is, you know, to these master breeders, you cannot have too much width as long as you had that, um, the, the width to balance. And people say, well, it's not balanced. Well, you better believe it's not balanced, but what's balanced about it is it's that deep and it's that wide. And that's what makes that rabbit so good. So using these other, um, these masters as a, as a platform, you know, I started this Facebook group called uh, Top Line 101 along with, um, you know, another top breeder, which is uh, Amanda Wapner. And we also have uh, Johnny Hopper, which is one of the, um, the legacy you know, breeders, he's been around the hobby for 50 years plus and beautiful Californians, you know, gorgeous top lines on them. And Sandra White, you know, she's in, she's another, you know, great breeder. And, you know, she's a, she's a DR editor who's also inside of it. You know, we, we, we started a Facebook group together. The, the goal was not necessarily to say pass on our opinions, you know, but we wanted to share the opinions of what we think is great. And what I see the success of that group is, you know, the, the best part is, is the young people participating and um, 
they're coming they're coming through and we're starting to agree on you know what is good top line whether it's a a shorter based rabbit like a florida white or a mini rex or a longer style rabbit like a new zealand or a californian um, and then you start seeing netherland dwarfs that are super deep and real short body with a real great turn over the hip and i think that's one of the positives that you know that I can see the Facebook and social media adding to it. A lot of people might say it's a, it's a negative because they might say that I or Johnny or Amanda or anybody else is trying to pass on our own personal ideal of um, of uh, of ideal upon other breeders. I don't think that's the case. Well, and you've got a group that's that's founded by three people that have been influential in more than just three breeds. I mean, you've raised several breeds and done it very well. Johnny's raised incredible cows that have influenced the cow movement that we've seen in the last five or six years. Amanda, she's won not only best in show at convention with her husband, but they've won groups over and across numerous breeds. So that's right. Absolutely. um, I think that that Facebook group, your top line one one group, by the way, I want you to give a plug for it in a second um, is I think it's the smartest group that's existed on Facebook. That's positive contemporary and inclusive to all levels at which you are doing this rabbit thing. So um, tell us if, if our listeners are, are wanting to learn more, how can they join that top line one-on-one group? And, um, and what is it, you know, how do you, how do you find it on Facebook? Well, you go top line one-on-one and then you just, you just hit join. And then there's four admins on there that, that, that I mentioned, it's myself, Amanda Wampner, Johnny Hopper or Sandra White, and we'll generally let you in. There's a lot of and, and answer to questions, please, on there. It says, you know, when was the when was the ARBA convention in 2017? The answer is Indianapolis. And then it asks you who's the uh, executive director of the ARBA. I keep seeing Chris Hayhow, but that, that that's the wrong. And and I let the members in, but the the correct answer is uh, Eric Stewart. And I think there's one other uh, question on there. But there's I see a lot of bots trying to join. Um, it says, you know, they answer every single question and put hello, hello, hello. And I see this with multiple bots or their fake, you know, fake profiles on there. And I just, we just don't let them in. But you let other people in, like, this is not a group that's sort of like a secret society. Like this is a group where anyone, whether you're a beginner or a veteran or a judge for 50 years, like this is a place where you can get together and really hardcore discuss some of the contemporary issues, especially when it comes to top line and perfection and placement of high point. Yeah, it's it's very object, objective. Um, people generally don't leave opinions unless people ask for the opinions. You know, they don't, there, there's no rabbit bashing on there. Um, you know, if somebody posts, you know, what I love is somebody posts a nice rabbit and you, you'll see like, you know, 100 likes or 200 likes. And, you know, somebody, you know, some new beginners will post and they'll ask for opinions and, you know, some people go out there and give feedback. And I, 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 you know, I make sure that there's no make, you know, nobody's saying that that rabbit's horrible or anything like that. I, it's, yeah, it's, it's a very a, inclusive it's, group. A very open participation. And uh, the I think the intent is positive and it's the intent is to help help the beginners and the veterans all kind of understand why one person thinks that uh, one one top line is better than the other. Yeah, it's a great group too for those getting judge licenses or 
maybe have just finished up oh my their goodness. licensing procedure. Like this is a place like we don't have shows right now to learn. So I, me, in my opinion, there's no better group than, than to go on top line one-on-one to learn about what's what people are talking about in their barns that are consistent with the, uh, you know, where we're all going uh, on big industry goals on evaluation of rabbits. I, let me give you a little feedback on this. So I got a call from, um, I got a phone call from one of the uh, a veteran judge who's been around forever. And he actually said to me, he said, I had this, um, I have this, uh, you know, this judging candidate work under me. And we had, you know, we had a class of six rabbits. And this candidate basically, you know, talked about, you know, rise, high point, you know, turn over the hips, you know, and was 100% top line focused. And this judge said that, you know, you know, you, you don't win with just top line. You need the full, you know, deeper to rabbit, you know, tenants, tendencies. You don't have that full. It, it, it tends not to have that fullness in the hind quarter. It, it just to make a, a rabbit that peaks real far back, that's super deep and have that width and have that, you know, width of the base as well and not have a long shoulder is difficult. And that's what makes great rabbits so challenging because you can breed a breeding a great shoulder is easy you can just sit there and rabbits will tend to you know want to breed flatter wider and longer if you just let them breed by themselves but if you i i think depth and i think um roundness those are recessive traits that we have to constantly breed for in order to get that quality inside of a rabbit but anyway right. go, going going back to this uh judging candidate i mean all he discussed was top line with this uh with this judge and this judge thought it was kind of funny, but the judge, this judge called me and said, you know, I think that top line, it's actually working because we can work with the uh, building blocks as long as they understand the top line. He said, I used to get these judging candidates. They come out there and their ideal round is, you know, starting from the neck and having a complete basketball to the tail. And that's what everybody understands is round because a basketball is round. What I think a lot of people fail to understand is if you read through the uh, the standard minus the Himalayan and minus the lion head, roundness is only described, only used to describe the hindquarter, which starts at the uh, which starts at the uh, front of the loin. You don't see roundness used to describe the spine. You don't use it see roundness to described as the uh, the midsection or the shoulder. Uh, you see the word gradual used to describe the rise you know or the gradual curve and everybody looks at it and says well that sounds like it's a flat back but it's not really a flat back you have to have that gradual rise or the gradual curve in order to put that high point over the center of the hips or you know behind the knees you start to put that high point way too forward and a lot of people say well you know high point is not that not a lot of people the the naysayers will say high points not that you know that not that important top line's not that important well the rare for me a rare rabbit you know the, making the very difficult rabbit with that depth and with that roundness of the hind quarter with that fullness of that base and and that wide loin those are all very recessive traits you have to breed for it in order to get it and i think for me it's really difficult to do that regardless of who you are you have to consistently do it and you have to remain focused in doing it in order to make a great rabbit. But, you know, advice. yeah, you can make a flat rabbit all day long. You can make a wide rabbit all day long. 
people post these pictures of these really wide hindquarters, and I'm thinking like it's like twice as wide as it's deep. You know, to me, it looks very average. You think that that breeding for width of body is easier than breeding for depth in in proportion of a one to one ratio to depth? Yeah, yeah. You can put if if you colony breed and let rabbits breed by themselves, and you don't selectively cull for what you're breeding for. I guarantee you, your rabbits will end up longer and they'll end up wider and flatter. Not show rabbits. Not show rabbits, but just let them breed by themselves. And, you know, just let, just leave them out in a big pen together and let them all breed together. They revert back to nature almost. They, they revert back to nature. I mean, if you go out and look at all these cottontails, they're, you know, super fine bone and they all slide off. They all, you know, they, if they stand up, they all slope off at the butt. <laughs> That's that's nature's nature's choosing, but I don't not know the why. I don't know why, but you know, for some reason, squirrels have really nice rabbit top. <laughs> I have I, never thought about that. The top oh, line of a good. squirrel. Next time, everybody, next time you see a gray squirrel in the park, please take a look at the top line. I'm going to do the I, same thing. It, it amazes. <laughs> this is a good one, I, Joe. It amazed me. They're a little long through the shoulder, but they're still very round over the hip, and they have a oh really round. Okay. Anyway, I won't. I won't. I won't no, that, that I think we have a podcast coming up, guys. Uh, squirrel, <laughs> squirrel evaluation, and its relevance to uh, nature. All right. One last question for each other. This has been a long bot podcast, but one that I think that that our listeners are really going to take home and probably listen to over and over again because there's some some really good life advice from almost three generations within your own of of coming back to rabbits. All right, Joe. Hypothetically, right? Yes. Talk about and describe your perfect rabbit show. Mm. Okay, so you can't uh, you can't have a rabbit show where everybody just loves each other because everybody wants to win. That's just competitive nature of why rabbit go, people go to a rabbit show. And when people tell me like, I just go to rabbit shows to hang out with friends, and I'm just thinking like, well, you know, if you want a friend, get a dog. You know, you go to a rabbit show to you know to show your rabbits, and you don't want you want your rabbits to you know try to win a class or you want them to win a variety, or you want them to try to win, you know, best of breed or best in show. So my idea of a rabbit show is going there where there's top breeders from each breed out there, and everyone's on their A game out there, and everyone's got a great rabbit up there, and making the judges sweat. That's my idea of a perfect rabbit show. I love it. I, I, I think I talked about this in an earlier podcast, but I have a dairy cattle judging book, and in the opening chapter, the to judge a show, it's a stimulating game. It's, it's equally challenging for a judge to select those rabbits as it is for those breeders to breed those rabbits to get there to that judging table and to be that competitive. So it should be a sweating bullets kind of moment for, for both, both parties. Right, right. I agree. I I, I've seen judges sweat, and that means like the rabbits are pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, regardless totally. of what breed it is yeah oh, I, I have I, I have sweat trust me yeah yeah it's like one of those like change uh, change your shirt kind of moments when you're when you're out there because oh, I, 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 I mean when I was showing my when I was showing good tans and I had like three in there I wanted the judges to sweat you know but the thing is is not all of them did there's some people out there they, they had their mind made up you know uh the late Kathy Patrick she had her mind made up when I was show when I went to uh the uh the mini Ohio State mini convention out there one Boom, boom. She had them all picked out. And, you know, Bill Patrick's another one who's a good tan judge. I can't decide who's better of the two, but they're both pretty damn good tan judges. Yeah, they totally were. All right, Joe. Hey, thank you for sticking with us tonight. This was 
fascinating. And I hope that we get you back because we're going to hone in on, you know, more evaluation techniques and, and judging as we, as we progress. And you are on the forefront of, of all that. And I thank you very much for all your work. And I'm going to give a plug back to your group. If um, listeners really want to learn more about contemporary issues and evaluating rabbits to the ARBA standard, join that top line one-on-one group on Facebook. All you got to do is go in your search engine or the search box on Facebook and, and type in top line one-on-one. There's a few easy questions, which Joe already gave the answers to um, and join that. If you, you know, looking for a little bit of fix right now, when we're not at the show tables, able to evaluate rabbits together, we're doing it on Facebook. These guys are doing it on Facebook. Joe has, is doing it on Facebook. So join top line one-on-one on Facebook. Thank you very much, Joe, for joining us tonight. And I hope Thank you that, for having uh, me. that you that you come back. Stick with okay. us for a few minutes. Um, Bryony, you're going to roll into some education stuff, I think. Yes, I am. Um, I I love that Joe mentioned Bob Bennett's books um, because that was actually one of the starting points for me as well. Um, my mom was a librarian, and when we decided to get into rabbits, she you know brought home the book she had at the library about rabbits. And it wasn't Raising Rabbits the Modern Way. It was actually one called the TFH book of pet rabbits. And I think they had a series where they had you know, different animals like hamsters and little small animals, but Bob Bennett had written the rabbit book. And it was to me today, like surprisingly breeder friendly because there's quite a divide between the pet rabbit and the show rabbit communities now. Um, but it talked all about raising rabbits. It talked about ARBA. It talked about 4-H and he talked mostly about his tans and his daughter's pet, Black Dutch. <laughs> I remember and that. so that was a, a very influential book for me as well. And I remember um, in the back end papers, you know, I was flipping through looking at pictures. This is before we'd chosen a breed. Um, the back end papers, you open the book up and it shows some silver martins at a show in England. And there's this little golden blazed face peeking in from the corner. And I thought that was the most beautiful rabbit I'd ever seen in my life. And turns out it was a UK yellow. Uh, I think we we tried to find Gold Dutch when I was a kid. And the closest thing was torts. And that's how I ended up with Tort Dutch. So that's I chose awesome. another uh, book just to give a little bit of the tan history. This is the ARBA guidebook from 1991, which is the first one I owned. And it says, the original black and tan rabbits were sports from a chance mating of a wild rabbit with a Dutch in the grounds of Culland Hall, near Brailsford in the county of Derbyshire, England. They yes. attracted great attention and spread rapidly. It was soon taken up by the French and was exhibited at the, oh, I'm going to butcher this, Vancour de Cannes in 1894, where it created a sensation and is still a popular breed, especially as a show specimen. The blue and tan was obtained by crossing a black and tan buck with a sooty fondo and then pairing the progeny. The sooty fondo is said to have come from a tortoise Dutch. Good old tort Dutch. And <clears throat> leading back to our, our episode three, when I believe Scott Williamson said his very first variety in Dutch was tort. Yeah. It, it's cool a stuff. gateway rabbit for a lot of people. But yeah, and it's interesting. You know, Dutch is a, a very old breed and they actually, as Doug was talking about last night, factor into the development of a lot of other breeds out there. No kidding. Yeah, they, they totally, they did like uh, Florida White, of course, the albino Dutch. <laughs> I'm still trying to wrap my head around the albino Dutch part. Um, awesome. On the education side, uh, this was such a great podcast. Oh, this was, this was a wonderful interview. You did a great job. Thank you. It was It's so great to have Joe on here. I've known him for many years and 
he is one of the most influential minds in in our industry today. And even when he was out, he was still influencing us, which is when I look back and I'm like, wow, he was he wasn't there, but he was there. You know, that the tan breed revolutionized um with his potency. And we still see those effects today. And now, of course, we're very lucky to have him back in and um and offering his knowledge and wisdom and and that sharing compassion uh, with others, you know, no matter where you are in the, in, in the, in, in rabbits or caves, whether you're beginning your, your journey or you're 50 years down the road, like there's a place for you and there's a place to learn and, and come on in here and, and let's do it together. Well, and that word you used earlier was hyper-focus and Joe, more than anyone I know, <laughs> besides having a lot of knowledge to share, will still tell you, you know, he, he still sees faults first in his rabbits. He still will tell you he's got a lot more to learn and has, you know, just dig so deeply into subjects. And, and it's really cool. I admire that. And obviously, that leads to the knowledge that he shares with all of us. No kidding. Can you imagine going to your first show after being out of rabbits, winning best in show? And instead of saying like, Oh, let's take a picture, let's take a Facebook post. He's like, Hey, guys, what, how, or how could this tan be better? To, you know, next time I come around, like, that, that that mentality is 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 a, is a secret ingredient. It's really not secret, but it is a key ingredient to to success. It's it's always wanting to know more and wanting to know how you can make what you're doing, which is great, even better. Yeah, the the really great breeders, um, you know, they'll be proud of rabbit. They'll tell you maybe this is the best one I've ever raised, but they're never the ones telling you, oh, I raised the perfect rabbit. Never. No, never will. Yeah, you're so right. All right, guys, thank you for joining us again. Episode nine of our podcast, Best in Show. Tonight, we featured, of course, the legendary Joe Kim, tan breeder, amongst other breeds, and one of the most influential people in our industry. Thank you again, Joe, for joining us tonight. Guys, have a wonderful evening, day, wherever you are, wherever you're listening. Hopefully, it's on the way to a rabbit show coming up. And don't forget, talk rabbits, talk cavies. It's what we love. It's what keeps us going, and it gives us a purpose in, in our life, even during the darkest times when other, otherwise, we seem to be stuck at home. Have a great night. While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, it does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net.